despite the promise of the international community, Afghan women were put up on podiums for almost 20 years, certainly in those early years, and told, you are our partners. You know, stick your neck out, come out on a limb. We will fund you, we will support you, we will finance you, we will train you, we will back you, and in the end, we'll abandon you. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Over the last weeks, I have been telling you about my book, about The Great Experiment. In the first part of the book, I talk about why it's so hard to build diverse democracy, what we can learn from the history of those societies. In the second part of the book, I talk about the vision of the kind of society we should be aiming for, the kind of society we should create. And this week we're coming to the end of that. We've talked about the basic rules which govern our cooperation, about the role of patriotism, about the kind of metaphor that can help us think through what sort of society we should want to create. Well, today I talk about something a little less tangible, something more cultural. How much of an aspiration can we have to build a meaningfully shared life? What will the culture of that diverse society look like? Now, I reject three different visions, which I think are too pessimistic. The first is to turn back the clock to try and return these societies towards places that are more homogeneous, places that don't accommodate the diversity which defines them today. I think that would be unjust because it wouldn't be allowing some of the members of our society to be full and equal members of those societies. It would also be incredibly cruel because the only realistic way to do that would be through significant levels of violence. The second solution would be what I call a refusal to change. It would be to say that all of the rules are fair as they are now and we don't really have to change anything we do. That, I think, is a mistake for reasons that I discuss in chapter two of the book, because many of our societies have in the past been defined by a form of soft domination, in which they were very homogeneous and they adopted rules which seemed to work at the time, which seemed to be inclusive at the time, but which actually did uh, discriminate against some of the members in significant ways. In a society which is overwhelmingly Christian, for example, it is enough to protect the major holidays like Christmas for everybody to be able to hold down a job and also live up to their religious duties. In a much more religiously diverse society, we should think about practical ways in which employees can take floating religious holidays so that they can honor their religious obligations with a similar level of ease. That's why simply refusing to change at all is a mistake. But there's also a third big mistake, one that is particularly fashionable in intellectual circles, particularly fashionable on the identitarian left. And that's what I call doubling down on identity. It is to assume that people will forever be defined in the deepest way by the ethnic and religious identity. And that that makes it impossible for them to actually communicate with each other. It is the embrace of a form of strategic essentialism, which pays lip service to the ways in which identities are socially constructed, but actually treats them like natural units, making your deep metaphysical status depend on the kind of ethnic group you're part of. It is the idea that it is impossible to have true mutual comprehension and the conclusion that political solidarity will always have to hinge on deferring to each other's demands rather than sharing a set of values or ideals. And it is finally casting any form of mutual cultural influence as so dangerous that you put whatever is called cultural appropriation under a general pole of suspicion. This, I think, is a triple mistake. And frankly, there is a better model than any of these wrong paths I've been discussing. One in which we have genuine empathy for each other, listening to each other's concerns and demands, and use that to build a deeper solidarity. One that is based on actual mutual belief 
in a set of general ideals and outrage over the ways in which we don't live up to those ideals for everybody. It is to recognize the virtue of mutual cultural influence, to see that under the right circumstances, being inspired by each other is one of the beautiful, not one of the threatening things about diverse societies. And thirdly, it is an emphasis on what we share rather than on what divides us. As I say, we should try to remedy historical injustices to such an extent that an identitarian lens, a racial lens, becomes less important, not because we ignore its continued relevance, but because it really does structure reality to a lesser degree. This rounds off my description of the vision of the kind of diverse societies for which we should aim. It concludes the second part of my book, but there's three more chapters in which I discuss how diverse democracies can succeed and why we should actually be a little bit optimistic about the future. My guest today is Yalda Hakim. Yalda was born in Kabul in Afghanistan. She grew up in Australia and is now a major journalist in London for the BBC. She presents BBC World News as well as Impact, among other shows. We had a really interesting conversation which helped me understand what improved in Afghanistan over the course of the two decades when the Taliban were out of power, why it is that the Taliban were able to reconquer power, what went wrong during those two decades, and what the situation today for women, but also for other Afghans, is amidst three very serious interlocking crises. Along the way, we also talked about similarities and dissimilarities with the war in Ukraine and what it's like for somebody with strong moral views to sit down at a table, even to ride along on missions with people who you strongly dislike, like the Taliban. As you'll see, it was a really compelling and moving conversation. Ada Hakim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Yasha. So you've been reporting on Afghanistan for a very long time now, and you were born in Afghanistan for, as I understand, you left as a baby. How much had life in Afghanistan actually improved over the last two decades? So when you're looking from the end of the Taliban rule until they reconquered Kabul, what changes happened in the country over the course of those two decades? You have to sort of remember where the country was in 2001 when the US-led invasion took place. Afghanistan had gone through a bitter civil war after the Soviet Union left the country and the country was embroiled in a civil war. And then there was the rise of the Taliban and the Afghan people had five years of, of a dark and brutal reign of the Taliban where women were virtually wiped out from the country. They were completely pushed out from the public eye. Girls weren't able to go to school. Women were just not present at all. You couldn't have TV sets. You couldn't listen to music. Men were forced to grow beards. People were only allowed to study in, in religious schools, madrasas. So, when you think about where the country was in 2001 when the US-led invasion happened and where it is today or just before August 15, this was a nation that was imperfect. Every time I went there, I was frustrated by the generators that were functioning. Why is there no electricity in a country where billions of dollars continue to be poured in from the international community? Why was it still such an aid-dependent country? Why was it still embroiled in this conflict that felt like the Taliban were, as each year passed, gaining more and more power? And yet, when we look at the gains of the last two decades, one of the most free and flourishing media environments in the whole region, where, sure, there was pressure from different powerful politicians, from militant groups, from powerful individuals, 
However, there was a free press. Girls were going to school. Women were in positions of power, whether that was judges, MPs, journalists, activists. People did have a voice and they were challenging the authorities. So it did come a long way. And when you looked at the landscape of Kabul, I remember just going there in July of 2021 and thinking, I wonder what will happen in the next few weeks. I wonder what will happen in the next few months. It all felt a little bit uncertain as we felt the Taliban edging closer and closer to the capital, starting to take provincial capitals. And yet there was still a glimmer of hope because of how far the country had come. So there was progress, although it was imperfect. So that seems convincing to me, but it makes it more puzzling why it is that the Taliban continue to have clearly so much support in large parts of a country. So was this progress limited to particular issue areas, very important issue areas like women's rights? Was it limited geographically so that, you know, life in Kabul was better for most people, but once you traveled a few miles out of Kabul, things were sort of as they had been decades earlier? You know, why is it that these improvements you're talking about didn't translate into more support for the government or at least more dogged resistance to the Taliban? There was so much frustration, Yasha, in the country. There was frustration with the corruption. There was frustration with the mismanagement. There was the frustration of this kind of attempt to grab power. If you think back to the election that took place, I believe it was in 2019, just before the COVID pandemic, We had two inaugurations in the country because Abdullah Abdullah and Ashraf Ghani were both claiming that they had won the election. There was this sense that there was no leadership in the country and people felt angry and frustrated by the fact that here they were fighting for change in their country. Some would say that the country had won the sort of geopolitical lottery at the end of 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, Afghanistan became the focal point of the international community and the United States decided to invade the country. And while right up until the very end, every American president said we weren't there to nation build, by default, nation building was taking place. Schools were being built. You know, there was construction. There was this attempt at recreating this nation. And it was Afghan-led. No matter how much people say that, well, it was the Western-backed government and the influence came from Western societies, it was Afghan women, Afghans themselves, who were driving this, who were pushing for change, who were creating change in their own societies. And yet there was anger and frustration at how corrupt the leadership was, right down to a local mayor or a local governor or the police or the army. Everyone wanted something in exchange for something. And the Taliban themselves were an indigenous force that were getting their funding from the region itself. And they were fighting without the support of the international community, of the Americans, of NATO. And they were somehow in their own way convincing the local population that, you know, when these air raids happen and a wedding party is accidentally targeted and struck and civilians are killed. This is the work of a corrupt government backed by the international forces who aren't here to build the lives of the Afghan people and we will offer you an alternative. So the Afghans themselves were stuck between a rock and a hard place. There are communities that I went to in November and December of 2021 after the Taliban took over who said to me, we didn't have a school here in the last 20 years. We didn't have a school here in the last 30 years. It wasn't just because the Taliban were in power that we didn't have an education for our girls or our boys. Because of the intense fighting between the Taliban and the Afghan forces backed by the international community and NATO, there was no peace or stability in places like Helmand, for example, so they weren't able to build schools for their children. Ultimately, the Afghan people just wanted peace They wanted the fighting to stop. They wanted the bombs to stop. And in the end, the international community had created a force that was backed only by the contracts that they provided. 
So once the rug was pulled out from underneath them and the contracts ended and the support was ended and the maintenance and all the kind of structure around it ended, the force itself crumbled. So the international community too needs to have a look at what went wrong, why they got it so wrong, why they built a force that was so dependent on them rather than an organic force that's there to defend a nation. So if you could go back to the fall of 2001 and write a memo either for the occupying forces or for you know, the first freely elected Afghan government, what would you put in that memo? You know, if we rerun this whole history and we set up decisions differently in 2001, 2002, and 2003, what are the big levers that could have led to a better outcome? Or do you think, actually, in retrospect, the structural challenges were so deep that we were unlikely to get to a better outcome, whatever decisions people might have taken at the time? Look, I think in hindsight, Yasha, when one looks back, there are so many things that could have been done differently. And I think the focus of the United States shifting to Iraq, that disrupted things as well for Afghanistan. But I think if we look back at Bonn in those early years and and the discussions that were being held on what this new Afghanistan would look like, what project Afghanistan would look like for the international community and for the Afghan people. One of the, I remember, was where the international community came together to essentially deliberate about the future of Afghanistan post-Taliban. That's right, yes. So the international community came together with key Afghan figures that had helped the United States defeat the Taliban. And the Taliban were on the run. Many of them were rounded up and sent to places like Guantanamo Bay. Many of them fled over the border into Pakistan. Others had said, look, we don't want to fight. We want to be part of a new Afghanistan. I think one thing that should have been done right from the outset is an understanding that the Taliban weren't going to go away, that the Taliban, sure, were on the run and in hiding now, but they were part of the fabric of that society. They had a voice within that society. And so why not bring them to the table and why, while they're weak and on the run, have them as part of the conversation? And those of the members of the Taliban who said, look, I don't want to go to Guantanamo Bay. I want to just live in Afghanistan, go back to my village, you know, have a peaceful life in this country, which is what many of them have subsequently said to me in recent months. We would have happily accepted the Karzai regime had we not been forced to flee or forced to pick up arms again because we weren't happy with the way things had unfolded. So I think the memo that I would write or the memo that I would think about or in hindsight, something that was a major fault of all the sides was leaving the Taliban out of the negotiation table. They shouldn't have left it so late, almost two decades after the fall of the Taliban regime and group for them to go back to peace talks and have them come to the negotiating table in Doha, first with the Americans and then an attempt with the Afghan government, which never eventuated. They should have done that when the Taliban were weak and on the run. That's very interesting. I thought of similar arguments in other contexts. I'm Jewish. I grew up in Germany and I grew up with a lot of anger and rage about the way in which senior Nazis ended up having real respectable positions in the early post-war democracy, in the early years of the Federal Republic. The chief of staff of Konrad Adenauer, the first post-war chancellor, had written the official commentary on the Nuremberg race laws. And this wasn't really a deliberate choice. It was to do with all kinds of compromises made during the time of the early Cold War and so on. But in retrospect, it was probably the morally fraught but politically right choice because it is what ensured that you never got a serious neo-Nazi movement in the early Federal Republic, because the people who might have led it and organized it actually were integrated in the new political system. And of course, in Iraq, there's the argument that the complete dissolution of the Ba'ath Party was one of the things that led the country towards civil war in the years after 2003. So it's interesting to think about that 
in the context of Afghanistan, even for anybody who would have argued that at the time, would have made themselves incredibly unpopular, incredibly unpopular, both with the American right, who would have said, how can we talk to people who plan the 9-11 attacks and so on? And also, I imagine, with the international left, who would have said, you know, these are people who really do hate any form of freedom for women. How can we go and negotiate with them? But I think you make a compelling case that that would have been a clever move. What about beyond that? So one point would have been finding some kind of way of reducing the incentives for the Taliban to organize in the way they did. Is there any steps that could have been taken to ensure that the governments from Karzai to Ghani would have ended up being more effective, less corrupt, more inclusive of the interests of all Afghanis? Yeah, I mean, yes, you think about the stories that came out about these plastic bags, rubbish bags full of millions of dollars transported into Afghanistan and handed over to different warlords, to tribal elders, to buy favour, to rather than understanding the people of the country, rather than understanding the complexity of a country like Afghanistan, that so much is intertwined. And one minute someone is your friend and the next minute they're your enemy. And we hear reports and stories of people saying, well, so-and-so is a member of the Taliban, when in fact they may have had some kind of enmity with that person over a land dispute. And so, therefore, you have the Americans, NATO, barging into a home, taking someone away, locking them up in Guantanamo Bay, resentment being built, and the cycle of violence continued. And we hear so many cases of these brutal governors who presided over a local community and in the guise of the war on terror, terrorized and brutalized their own community with the help of the international community and the allied forces who perhaps were ignorant or perhaps were unaware or perhaps knew but turned a blind eye because it was easier to say these are our partners, these are the people that we've aligned ourselves with and this is what they're telling me, this is the information, the human intelligence that they're providing me and I have to rely on that. Yes, I know some of it is maybe false, incorrect, wrong, but it is easier to know my enemy who is the Taliban, and that's who I'm fighting, rather than get caught up in the tribal conflicts and warfare of these complex people, the Afghan people. And so I think that in itself, having a greater depth and knowledge and understanding of your subjects and the people that you're dealing with. And I think perhaps those things were amiss because the speed in which the whole thing unfolded, the speed in which Bond took place, the invasion itself took place, and then trying to set things up as you went. And I think there were key moments in those early years, whether it was in 2003 or 2004 or 2006 or 2008, when the violence really intensified. And even in those early years of 2003 and four, when there was intelligence around saying that, you know, the Taliban are regrouping, there's an insurgency forming. There was perhaps a way of either bringing them back into the fold then or clamping down on it. But I think that the sense of resentment that was being built in this society by one group, the losing side. And, you know, you, you just gave that example of how could the international community come to terms with bringing the Taliban to the table in those early years because they harbored out members of Al-Qaeda who were behind 9-11 or members of the left who say, well, you know, these people treat women badly or don't give people their basic human rights. Well, here we are in 2022. And where are those voices? Those voices don't really exist. Afghan women are staring down the barrel of a gun, fighting this war on their own, fighting for their own basic human rights on their own. Despite the promise of the international community, Afghan women were put up on podiums for almost 20 years, certainly in those early years, and told, you are our partners, you know, stick your neck out, come out on a limb, we will fund you, we will support you, we will finance you, we will train you, we will back you, and in the end, we'll abandon you, we'll leave you to the very people that we encourage you to take on, to stand up against, to have a voice against to be educated against. These Afghan women who were trained as judges, who prosecuted these men, who are now looking for these women, and so many of them are either on the run, in hiding, or have fled the country, 
after being funded and sponsored and trained by the West for 20 years. And now they're fighting this war on their own. They're protesting day and night, not just for the most basic things like a meal on their table or to be fed or to have their frozen fronts to be unfrozen, but just for their girls to go to school. Because here we have the biggest reversal of basic human rights ever, anywhere, overnight. This literally happened overnight. In recent memory, we haven't seen this kind of reversal of basic rights that literally happened overnight. As soon as the Taliban took over, they gave a press conference and laid out what their Sharia law would look like. And frankly, when we see the events of the last few months, it should put to rest once and for all the notion and idea of a Taliban 2.0. This hope that the Western world had, here we are signing a peace agreement and a deal with you because you've changed. Well, what we should see now and reports that we're seeing constantly from the United Nations that Al-Qaeda has a foothold in the country, Al-Qaeda is very much present in the country long before the Taliban took over, US Treasury warned about this. And when I've held US officials, NATO officials accountable for this or held them to account, they said, oh, no, those reports are dated and that's not in fact correct. And the Taliban say that they'll never use Afghanistan as a base for terror. And so one has to question, and it certainly is something that keeps me up at night, where I wonder what was all this for? All of these slogans, you know, blood and treasure, hearts and minds, everything that we heard in the last 20 years, a whole generation has known the connection with Afghanistan. And yet the Western world walked away and abandoned many of the people who were their partners. Yeah, I think the most extreme expression of that was in early August of 2021, when President Biden said something along the lines of, you know, Afghans have to fight for themselves, implying that they hadn't been doing so. And, you know, I think in these debates, it's always interesting to hear sort of those collective adjectives they, right? Sometimes I have students who have a morally relativistic bend who say, well, who are we to tell people in Afghanistan, how they want to live. If they want to live under Taliban rule, that's their choice. But the there, once again, is a sleight of hand because, of course, people in Afghanistan did not choose democratically to be ruled by the Taliban. Most of them do not want to be ruled by them. And certainly women in Afghanistan did not have agency in that matter. And so you don't get around the difficult moral questions in that way. What today is the situation in Afghanistan? There were some assurances from pretty self-interested Western officials saying, you know what, when the Taliban come back this time, you know, they've moderated and they've learned and they've modernized and it's not going to be as bad. There's also very shocking reports of some of the things that have been happening in the last months. What does life look like today in Afghanistan in general in terms of affluence and access to food and water and electricity and healthcare and all of those things? And just how far have the basic rights of women regressed since the Taliban took over last summer? I think the best way to sum up what life is like now for Afghans is if we break it down into three crises. The first is the humanitarian and economic crisis that we're seeing because the economy is close to collapse. The funds of the nation have been frozen People don't have access to their salaries. They haven't been paid for months. There is food in the markets. There is food in restaurants. There is food when you go out, you see food. So there's no shortage of food when we talk about a famine or when the UN says it's a march towards starvation. People just don't have the funds to buy it. They don't have the funds to buy a piece of bread. They haven't been paid their salaries for months and months and months. So if we think about you and I, if we don't get paid our salary for a few weeks, we'll protest and say, I'm not coming back to work until you pay me my salary. There are people in Afghanistan, especially in the health sector, who go in every single day to work and have done so for the last nine or 10 months without a pay packet. Because they said to me in the hospitals that if we don't go to work, those children that you see in those incubators who are close to death because of the famine and malnutrition and are simply here because they haven't been fed and because of the poverty and because of hunger, 
they will die if we don't come to work. From the cleaner who said to me, I come in every day without a salary and I don't get paid, but if I don't come in and clean these wards, those children will get an infection and die. To the nursing staff, to the doctors, they come in day in, day out. And one woman said to me, she said, I don't have 11 cents to get a bus to work. So I walk three hours every morning to get here. She said, I live on top of the mountain in the hills of Kabul. And she said, in the snow, I slide down and I have bruises all down my leg. And she said, when I go back in the evening, my husband says, where's your money? Where's the pay? How are we going to feed the family? You've been gone all day. You aren't here to look after our children. Where's the money that you go to work for? And she says, along the way, I look for scraps of food so that I have something to take home. So this is one aspect, just to paint a picture for you of what the situation is like. The next one is the security crisis. When I was in Kabul and Helmand and Kandahar in November and December, we went on multiple raids with the Taliban who were raiding ISIS sleeper cells. We're seeing mosques being bombed where in excess of 100 people are killed at any given time. Whether it's in Kandahar or Kunduz or Mazar, people are dying still in the country as a result of bombings. And someone said to me, the Taliban have become the Ghani government and ISIS have become the new Taliban. And this cycle, this vicious cycle continues in the country. You know, that when the Taliban last ruled Afghanistan, it was a brutal reign. But the one thing that they could more or less guarantee the people was security. And this time they can't even do that. People are hungry. They're not safe. There are bombs going off. And the third crisis is the human rights crisis, where Afghanistan is the only country in the world that prevents girls from getting an education. Teenage girls over the age of 12 are not allowed to go to school. In the last few weeks, we've seen television presenters forced to cover their faces in Afghanistan. Women are being told, do not leave your homes unnecessarily. Unless you have a reason, do not leave your homes. You don't have a job because there are no jobs for you. You don't need to go to get an education because there are no prospects for you. Your husband or male guardian can go out and get food or any other supplies for you. There is no reason for you to be out. But if you do go out, cover your face. If you do go out, do not have a voice. If you do go out, you are not to work. If you do go out, you cannot take your children with your husband to a park because they're segregated now. But even then, Afghan women have lost a sense of hope. The spirits that they had, the burning fight and spirit that they had, despite the insecurities in the country over the last two decades, there was hope and reason to study because you could become a judge, because you could become an MP, because you could go to the United States on a Fulbright because you could come to Oxford University and study and then go back to the country. So for all its faults and flaws, there was a sense of purpose and hope. And all that has now been taken away. You know, that's incredibly powerful and incredibly depressing. You said the word hopeful. Is there any hope for the situation to get better? What are the different scenarios for what the future of Afghanistan might look like. Because I have to say, after listening to you explain these three crises, I have a very, very heavy feeling in my heart. Yeah, you know, Yasha, we all have heavy feelings in our hearts because it's the loss of a nation. It's not just the collapse of a nation and a country. It's the loss of a nation and the idea that you no longer have a land or a home and that's been taken away from you, is how many of these people who stayed in the country despite the targeted killings, you'll remember there was a spate of targeted killings pinned on the Taliban before the takeover of the Taliban, where journalists, activists, people who worked for the government, members of parliament would be sitting in their car and suddenly someone armed would come and shoot them at point blank range, or there would be a sticky bomb 
placed in the vehicle that they were traveling in. And this happened to a number of prominent Afghan, mostly female journalists and civil society members and people who were raising their voice. And not just prominent, people who were just quite sort of significant in what they were doing in their field. Some unknown, some as young as 24, a young woman who worked for the Human Rights Commission was brutally murdered. She was simply working in that department and investigating a few cases, but certainly not prominent. When you think about what hope is there, I interviewed a member of the Haqqani network, Anas Haqqani, the younger brother of Sirajuddin Haqqani, who has a $10 million bounty on his head. And he's also the interior minister of the country. And he talked to me about Afghans never accepting someone imposing anything on them. He said, look, you know, the Soviet Union tried to back a communist regime and look what their fate was. You know, it collapsed and Afghans demanded change and they rose up and we had the Mujahideen fight against them. He said, look what's happened in the last 20 years. Afghans rose up. They didn't want a Western-backed government. They fought and now here we are. And I said to him, but what about everything that the Taliban is imposing on the Afghan people and the will of the Afghan people. So this idea that the Taliban can just carry on preventing girls from going to school, preventing women from having a voice and being part of the public domain and pushing them out of the public space, forcing families to do things that they know are against their basic human rights. So the difference between the Taliban coming to power in 1996 and the Taliban coming to power in 2021 is in 1996, Afghans didn't know what they had lost. They had just come out of a brutal civil war. Kabul and other parts of the country were being shelled and bombed day and night. There was brutality and the Taliban came with the message of peace and stability. So Afghans grabbed it with both hands. Then the brutality that they imposed on the Afghan people by cutting out music, by stopping people from going to school, from having basic rights, from watching television, from growing their beards, from being lashed in the streets if women showed even a slight bit of ankle. What Afghans know today is a life where they were free. Sure, there were flaws. Sure, the government was corrupt but they were free to make choices for themselves, whether they wanted to send their girls to travel abroad to study, whether they wanted to have basic freedoms within their family environment, whether they wanted to simply go to a park to enjoy family time together. These are basic freedoms that they had. And that has been taken away from them overnight. And so just as the Taliban speak with pride now and say, we defeated the greatest military alliance in history, the Afghan people do not want their basic freedoms taken away. And so that's why the only hope when I speak to the Afghan people that I sense is there is only so much people will tolerate before they vote either with their feet or demand change or come out on the streets or pick up arms. That's very inspirational, and I want to believe that, but I wonder whether there isn't a kind of systemic difference between those two scenarios, because it's one thing to have, in particular, as was the case in the 80s, a sort of, you know, set of foreign troops in the country. And so local forces that know the terrain much better can organize in the hinterland, and you can have ethnically or religiously based resistance cells. And we know that that form of guerrilla warfare has often been successful from Vietnam to Afghanistan to other places. It's a different thing for to have internal divisions, right? To have some people within society who are comfortable with the moral and religious doctrines of the Taliban and others who say, no, you know, we have gotten used to certain kinds of liberties and we want to fight for them. But to organize along those lines tends to be much more difficult, much more complicated. And you also fighting against something which on some superficial level has a great legitimacy because it is homegrown and because it can say we beat the most powerful military alliance in history or whatever it is. So what would that look like? I can see what it would like for people to go to their feet was to say lots of refugees, lots of people leaving the country, but Afghanistan itself continuing to be under the control of the Taliban. That's easy to imagine. What would it look like for people to fight back effectively, which seems unlikely to me, but Taliban to moderate in some kind of way over time? 
Yeah, and it's a very, very interesting question because when we think about the makeup of the Taliban in the last 20 years or the count of how many Taliban fighters there were in the last few years, there were estimates of anywhere between some said 30,000, some said 70,000, some said 100,000. So one has to question then, how is 100,000 Taliban fighters or an insurgency turned government holding 38 million people hostage? And what does it take for a society like Afghanistan, which is incredibly tribal and looks to tribal elders to have jurgers, to have tribal discussions, to make decisions? What does it take an ancient society like that, which relies so heavily on that form of community and hierarchy, to say, okay, we've had enough, to say it might not be about resistance and picking up arms because, as you say, the difference between the 80s and then the 2000s is there were foreign forces backing these different militia groups or fighters. The difference, though, now is that however you judge the Afghan army, And again, estimates of the number of fighters there were, the number of people that were part of the armed forces, some said 180,000, some said 300,000. And all of those numbers are believed to have been inflated. Is that regardless of the fact that they were based on this contractual system and totally reliant on the United States, they did get some form of training. And while they crumbled overnight and left because of a lack of leadership, there is an armed force that either left or are in bordering countries. And so what I'm trying to say is that 100,000 Indigenous fighters from within the Taliban that had perhaps some funding from the outside were able to defeat NATO and the United States and the Afghan army. What is there to say that collectively Afghanistan, for all its turmoil of the last 40 years, something won't rise from the ashes of today? is all I'm saying, and how that will look. And we're seeing some skirmishes and some fighting taking place north of Kabul at the moment. And this is the only period in the last 40 years where a group of militia are not being backed or funded by the international community. So even the Mujahideen, when the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan, were getting backed by the Americans and the CIA and the funding we know that existed. So... Ultimately, this is the only period where that isn't taking place. But nothing ever remains the same in Afghanistan, and something always rises from the ashes. And I think whether it's women staring down the barrel of a gun and protesting, whether it's skirmishes in the Panjshir, which is just north of Kabul, it's only a matter of time before these restrictions become so suffocating that whether it takes five years, ten years, two years, something else emerges. Well, I really hope that that prediction turns out to be right. In the last months, we've also been reporting a lot on Ukraine. Now, there are some similarities between those two cases. It is both a matter of people fighting against suffocating dictatorship, fighting for their freedom. But there's also a whole set of very obvious differences between the two places. How did Afghanistan resonate in your mind, as you were reporting on what's going on in Ukraine at the moment? Well, the one thing that really was quite stark and stood out right from the outset was when we saw President Zelensky remain in the country. And I think one of the things that struck and has stuck is when the United States offered to evacuate him from the country. And he said, I'm not looking for a ride. I'm looking for help. It's rare that sound bites really have a political impact, but that feels like one of those sound bites that actually made a big difference. Yeah, and I think that it also resonated with a lot of Afghans who were incredibly angry at the fact that Ashraf Ghani had left the country and he had left with his inner circle and he fled and abandoned the nation to the Taliban. And I think that for many, that sense of leadership and someone remaining despite the threats, despite him talking about being target number one, 
on the assassination hit list. And despite knowing that he could die at any time, he remained in the country and he provided the kind of morale that the nation needed. And, you know, Ukraine is also a very complicated society and Volodymyr Zelensky's approval ratings were quite low before the conflict began. And this is also a complex society that is very vocal about its leadership in Kyiv and how they feel about that. But when I spent time in Western Ukraine and I spoke to the Ukrainian people, the one thing that they felt incredibly proud about, whether they were a supporter of Zelensky or vehemently against him before the war, the one thing it had done was created a sense of unity, a sense of purpose, because it had come from the top down. And there was this sense that if our leader can stay in the heart of the capital and be a target and be surrounded by Russian forces, artillery, tanks, and knowing what was just happening 20 minutes, half an hour outside of the capital, I think that that really was quite striking being there and knowing what had happened months earlier in Afghanistan when Ashraf Ghani left the country and Kabul fell. I took a call from the Taliban as they were on the gates of Kabul live on air. And I said, what is your intention? What do you plan on doing? And the Taliban spokesperson I spoke to said, we're on the outskirts of Kabul. We will not enter the city. We are waiting for a peaceful transfer of power. And even today, when you speak to the Taliban, they will say, this is not how they saw things unfolding, that Ashraf Ghani would flee. And, you know, they would be left to deal with what happened next, which was to enter, to prevent looting, to safeguard the capital, to ensure that there was security of the capital because it had been abandoned and deserted by the leadership. So when you see Zelensky stay in the capital and say that he will defend the capital and defend the country, it mobilized the people. I met 18-year-old students, young teenage girls who had the option of leaving, but were creating camouflage nets in Lviv to be sent to the front lines. They were helping recreate helmets and doing whatever they could, Molotov cocktails. I spoke to grandmothers who were saying to me, I have no idea what I'm doing, but they've given me the ingredients and told me this is how you create a Molotov cocktail. But I need to do what I can to defend my land and defend my country. The one thing that I think was unfair about what President Biden said was that Afghanistan needs to fight for itself. 66,000 Afghan soldiers died in the last 20 years. So the Afghan people did fight, but They were let down by the leadership, by a lack of guidance, by the so-called founding fathers of Afghanistan post 9-11. In the last two decades, there was this real vacuum in power and leadership. And that is something that we've seen in a very striking way in Ukraine, and it really has united the people. Yeah, one of the things that I've been wondering about that is, you know, how much of this is structure and how much is agency, right? How much of this is that actually Ukrainians, when push came to shove, did have a strongest sense of nationhood or a stronger strength of the political ideals they were defending, importantly against foreign invasion, versus people in Afghanistan not having the same identification with the government and the government not having enough organic support, or whether this was simply the story of two people, whether this was simply the story of Volodymyr Zelensky becoming a hero and making the right moral choice in ways that were not predicted by everybody, in ways that perhaps he himself did not anticipate that he would prove to be, you know, so courageous, versus Ashraf Ghani being deeply corrupt and, when it counted, deeply cowardly. So I've been wondering about that. But I have another question for you as well, which is, in the first months of the war in Ukraine, one talking point I heard a lot on social media in particular was a sort of outrage that people didn't care about the war in Syria. Oddly, they didn't want to talk about Afghanistan because most of these were people who were actually in favor of the United States leaving Afghanistan. 
that they were saying, look, people didn't care about Syria. And now they're caring so much about Ukraine. And isn't the explanation for that some form of bigotry or even some form of racism that they're shocked by a war in Europe that they couldn't care less about a war in the Middle East? Now, I think there's something fair to that criticism. I think there may be something to that. But my feeling at the time was, let's wait a couple of months. People did care about Syria originally. They cared about Afghanistan originally as well. But as these wars and civil wars dragged on for months and years, they stopped caring. They fell off the front pages and eventually they got sick of it and said, ah, let's just get out. Let's not do anything. Who cares? And in the last weeks, I found myself wondering whether Ukraine is starting to encounter a similar fate, whether it too is being slowly pushed away from the front pages, whether the big wave of solidarity that we saw is ebbing away. So what do you think? Is that a sort of fair objection that people were making? Was it overstated? Was the right lesson to say, yes, and that's why we should care more about Syria and Afghanistan rather than less about Ukraine? How do you make sense of this set of discussions? I think you summed it up well at the beginning when you talked about, you know, it had potential of being many of those things. But I do think it is about proximity and relatability as well. That for the Polish people, for example, and I've made several films about pressure on Poland from the EU because they're not meeting their own obligations by having zero immigration, for example, or being hostile towards people coming from other parts of the world and settling in Poland. And yet they opened their doors and were quite extraordinary in embracing the Ukrainian people. When I was crossing the border from Poland into Ukraine, I was seeing, you know, cars and cars and cars of people with food and supplies waiting for Ukrainian families to arrive, mostly women and children, to take them to their homes, to support them in whatever way they could. And I really do think that is about relatability and proximity and the fact that this neighbouring nation was being targeted by a invading force, a larger power, and something that the Polish people could relate to, that their nationhood was challenged in many similar ways. And they understand the fear of being gobbled up by that and their sense of patriotism and nationhood being questioned. And so I do think it was about proximity, relatability, you know, a neighboring nation that is experiencing something that they had gone through and wanting to open their doors and homes. So I think it had a lot to do with that. And someone who is in the news business, as you know, the fact is that there is fatigue with these things and we try and sustain it in places like the BBC for as long as we can. We go back beyond reactive journalism where we're covering, you know, the daily bombs and what's happening. We try and pull back and go behind the headlines and try and go back to people who were impacted, who we met at the very beginning, and try and sustain our coverage for as long as we can. And we do go back. And we have continued to do so because we mustn't forget that the war in Ukraine did not begin at the end of February. The war in Ukraine began in 2014. This is a nation that has been embroiled in this kind of conflict in excess of 15,000 deaths since 2014. And people certainly weren't paying attention to that between, let's say, 2015 and 2021. Exactly. And perhaps if the world had paid greater attention to that, then perhaps we wouldn't be in this position. Because whether it's Georgia in 2008 or Ukraine in 2014 or Syria in 2015 or Ukraine now in 2022, perhaps if we hadn't turned a blind eye to all of these things, or been when we hear Joe Biden talk about the unity with Europe and NATO, perhaps if there had been one firm voice when all of those things had taken place, this sort of devastation may not have taken place. Who knows what the calculus ultimately would have been? And we've spoken now, you know, about in hindsight, looking back, could things have been different? But when you have a 2008, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2022, and very little is done, then is it any wonder that this has been the reaction? There's been this big debate over the last months about whether Vladimir Putin is irrational, but it seems to me that 
given all the indications he was given over the course of the last two decades about how little the world cared when he invaded countries, when he acted with incredible cruelty in Ukraine since 2014, in Ukraine over the course of the last decade, in Georgia, in Syria, in Chechnya. He had very good reason to think that the world would not, in fact, respond and come to Ukraine's rescue. And I agree with you that if we had sent a much stronger signal that we would, in fact, help Ukraine beat off this terrible invasion, then it may not have happened in the first place. I want to close with a personal question. One of the things I found myself wondering over the course of this conversation is that you're obviously a person of strong convictions and a healthy sense of moral outrage at what the Taliban are doing to Afghanistan at the moment, for example. And yet you've casually mentioned interviewing them, taking phone calls with them, riding along as they go on missions. What does that look like in practice? I imagine that you're not too fond of them and they're probably not too fond of you. Do you develop a kind of set of working relationships? Do you put those feelings in the back of your mind? Do you find yourself thinking, oh, this is such a nice person? Then you sort of step back and think, hang on a second, who is it that I'm actually talking to? I think especially at a time when political conflict feels so existential. It's always interesting to hear from reporters whose job it is in part to go and speak with and interact with people about whom they have very strong moral views for very good reason. Yeah. And as you know, these things are incredibly complicated and complex, especially in our field, where on the one hand, you take phone calls from devastated young girls and women who say to you, you know, this is what's happened to my life. And you and I spoke about the restrictions and the utter heartbreak that millions of girls across this country feel across Afghanistan about not being able to be educated and not knowing what their future holds and for them it feeling very bleak. And then on the other hand, for me to understand my privilege, knowing that I may be born in Afghanistan, I may be an Afghan woman, albeit raised in the West, in Australia and living in the UK. I work for a major news broadcaster and organisation that has clout and power, which means when I enter these places and enter these conversations, I have a seat at the table with them. They listen to me and I listen to them. And I report on what they're doing. And they know that I'm doing these reports and I'll be going back to Afghanistan in a few weeks. And I think that it is incredibly challenging and difficult, but I know that I also have a job and I have to do my job well. And I have told the Taliban this, as I've told others that I've covered, whether it was in Iraq or Syria or Yemen or Mexico, wherever I've worked from and reported from, my job is to seek the truth, and I will report it if it's the truth. And I've told the Taliban this, that if you do something good, I will report it. If you do something bad, I will report it. My job is to get to the bottom of what the truth is. And that involves me traveling with them, sitting down with them, speaking to them, interacting with them, listening to them, challenging them, and ultimately getting to as close as the truth of what is actually happening to help for the sake of public good, to help international viewers and audiences and the Afghan people better understand the climate. And that is a huge responsibility that I feel, certainly in relation to Afghanistan, but also in relation to Ukraine most recently, where I was meeting so many women. And this is what I was really overwhelmed by. As someone who has a small child, as a mother now, I was completely taken aback and overwhelmed by the fact that I was seeing so many women on the run from Ukraine with their small children and the clothes on their back, doing whatever they could to get out of the country to safety. And so for all of those people who stayed and fought, there are millions of others who are desperately concerned, like any parent, for the safety of their children and had to leave. And so I was struck and overwhelmed by that. So really, my job is to go to these places, meet with these difficult characters. And as you say, there are occasions where one-on-one with a human being, I realize they are human. I realize that ultimately they are human beings. And perhaps they too once had dreams and hopes for a better future for themselves. But they have fought for an ideology, an ideology 
that is currently oppressing and suppressing a population. And my job is to get to the heart of that and the truth. Yada, thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.